0: Good afternoon, or good morning, depending on where you are. My name is Ilya Shapiro. I'm the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, Seven weeks now. We're into the eighth week of our nationwide shutdowns with the pandemic, and people are feeling restless. Uh, Have some governors and mayors gone too far as a constitutional matter in telling people to leave public parks or roping off so-called non-essential items in their stores? and other examples that have gotten national attention. I myself found my tennis course that I've been using uh, all, all this pandemic, uh, newly chained, um, a bizarre experience. What about prohibiting gatherings that exceed the maximum number of people but still enforce social distancing norms? And now, of course, the debate has focused to opening up uh, and, and what uh, requirements can still be or should still be in place, forcible mask wearing, uh, for example. And then federalism is still at play. What what role is there for the federal government in what we're seeing beyond, uh, again, regulating the CDC and preparing tests and, and what have you? Uh, here to join me in discussing these important issues uh, is Randy Barnett, who's the Cormac Waterhouse Professor of Legal Theory at the Georgetown University Law Center and a senior fellow here at Cato. And also the co-author of the spectacular Introduction to Con Law, 100 Supreme Court Cases that Everybody Should Know, co-authored with uh, Josh Blackman. And it's a a good, uh, affordable price. And if you buy that, uh, you get a whole series of videos of Josh and Randy discussing these important cases. They're really good product. We had a book uh, for them. uh, I think it was late last year. All right. Well, let's uh, uh, go right into it. Uh, if you are on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube, please ask questions using the hashtag CatoScotus. Uh, if you're on our website w- watching this, there's a box there that you can insert your questions that I will be monitoring. Well, Randy, let's let's uh, jump right off here. Uh, in an event that uh, uh, we had at Cato two just over two weeks ago, called Coronavirus and the Constitution, one we went over the basics of. The police power and the relationship between states and the federal government, uh, but refresh us and 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 tell us exactly where the states are getting this power to have these shutdowns uh, and how we should think about these issues that arise with uh, closing or reopening uh, uh, in waves, you know, parks and you know things that people are seeing. Uh, is that constitutional? Is there just kind of a know it when I see it sense, or how do we evaluate these these situations?
1: Well, thanks for having me on Ilya. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, The basic concept that is at issue here with respect to health and safety laws by the state is called the police power. And everybody is to be forgiven if they don't know what the police power is, because it's not something that's taught in law schools anymore. And the reason it's not taught is because some time ago um, it was decided by the courts that essentially the police power is unlimited and to be qualified only by uh, violations of or constraints provided by express uh, fundamental rights that are in the Bill of Rights, let's say, the First Amendment, the Second Amendment, and if it's if you don't have a fundamental right, then the police power is not is not limited. But historically, the police power was a more limited concept than that, and I think it's important for viewers to know where it came from. The police power, in a nutshell, is the power that states have to protect each of us. Uh, in our rights from having our rights violated by other people. The most obvious examples of police power uh, prohibitions are laws against murder, rape, and robbery. But the state does not have to wait until a right is violated before they can take action to prevent rights from being violated. Drunk driving laws are an example of that. Health and safety laws are another example. Building codes are an example. Um, And if you want to understand sort of what the it, the principled foundation of the police power is you can start with the Declaration of Independence. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, among which are the right of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Those are each individual liberty rights. And the next sentence says, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. The police power is the power that states have to secure the individual rights of we the people. So then the question is, is that power limited or unlimited? As I said, under current law, it's more or less unlimited except for fundamental rights or equal protection challenges. Um, And then to get a fundamental right, that's a whole other story, but mostly it has to be an enumerated right or a right of privacy as an unenumerated fundamental right that the courts have recognized. But prior to the modern era, uh, prior to the rise of this fundamental rights approach, which came about in the 1950s, essentially what the police power required is that governments that were pursuing a health and safety uh, uh, measure or pursu- pursuing a health and safety agenda be doing so in good faith. That is, they must, actu- they must have uh, provisions or means that are actually being used to have a health and safety benefit uh, and not merely purport to, not merely a pretext for a restriction that they might want for other reasons. Now, how do you tell whether it's an actual restriction or a pretext? Well, then you have to look at the fit between the means adopted and the end of health and safety. And the government then would have to provide an explanation for why this particular restriction on liberty, liberty generally, is necessary and proper um, for protecting health and safety. And I think that's by way of, uh, I think that brings us up to the present day, Ilya, and that gives us a sort of a background on which to proceed.
0: Well, so let's take something specific. You know, we're, we're eight weeks or seven weeks past discussing, should there be general orders to shut down? But what about specific things? Like people are want to go to parks and they want to keep socially distancing. Is it constitutional for a governor to uh, close a, a state park, uh, just generally, even without, you know, looking at whether people are socially distancing while they're there.
1: So are you asking me about uh, modern law or are you asking me about the, the fundamentals of the original meaning of the Constitution? Because the two are not okay. the same thing.
0: Well, you, talk about both. Talk about how a court would look at it today and, you know, why that's uh, not the proper framework, if you wish.
1: Okay. Okay, how a court would look at it today I already mentioned and that is that they would essentially defer to state legislatures or governors if their powers have been if they've been given power by their state legislature to enact these health and safety measures and they would not second guess the wisdom as they would say of these measures. And so it would be up to the political process to correct abuses of this power unless you could identify a fundamental right that's being restricted and that's the reason why the challenges that you see uh, having some measure of success, having any success at all, are measures that are restricting, for example, the free exercise of religion, which prohibits, uh, dr- who prohibited drive-in services where everybody stayed in their car and social distancing was maintained. That particular challenge was successful because it was a recognized fundamental right. If it's a recognized fundamental right, and that's generally limited to enumerated rights, uh, then uh, you might have a, you might be able to get the government to have to justify what they're doing. But if you don't have an enumerated right, then you don't.
0: So uh, un- unless you can point to uh, the Bill of Rights, unless you're talking about a church or uh, a gun shop, perhaps uh, there you're you're out of luck. The, the deference is total. There's no there's no limiting principle on that.
1: In principle, you're supposed to get what's called rational basis review, and that is that the means adopted must be rationally related to a legitimate state end. Health and safety is, of course, a legitimate state end. So then the question is, is there a rational relationship? That was also the historical test. So what changed from the historical test to today is a 1955 case of Williamson v. Lee Optical in which the court essentially adopted what uh, I call the conceivable basis test. And that is that the court will find that there is a rational basis if the court can conceive of a possible reason why the legislature or governor might have done it. And even if the, they, the legislature and the governor can't come up with its own rec- explanation, courts will have the duty to make one up for them. And if that's the standard that's going to be applied, the modern rational basis standard, which is not always applied, but is generally applied. Uh, then, of course, you will lose unless you have an enumerated right. This is not the way it was supposed to be after passage of the 14th Amendment.
0: But wouldn't even modern courts look at things differently depending on the facts on the ground, which are, after all, different now than they were seven, eight weeks ago? So forgetting what, you know, how they would have ruled then, let's say right now, as lots of states and cities are uh, rescinding their orders or reopening in, in in waves or what have you let's say uh, uh, a governor or a mayor says oh no 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 this is even worse than i thought uh we are now going to make sure that nobody goes out for anything even the grocery store is closed you have to order your food or something else any you know police if they see anyone outside instant arrest uh, would that uh, would that not be challengeable
1: It should be. Um, And whether it is or not will depend on local judges deciding whether to give rational basis tests, the rational basis test, some teeth, as they say. Uh, The Institute for Justice has actually made a pretty good living challenging local regulations as irrational and getting local judges, state court judges, uh, or lower court judges to go along, notwithstanding what the Supreme Court has said about the rational basis test. So, yeah. You might be able to get a judge to do it. Um, That's that's already happened, I guess. Um, But uh, it depends if the courts actually, if you actually went up on appeal and it actually got to the Supreme Court, by and large, I think it would not have much success. Let me add one thing. The the appropriate approach to the uh, police power is very fact dependent. That is on the facts is a means related to the end. And so as the facts change, the constitutionality of a measure will change along with it. That's something that most people don't think about. They think if I have a right, then I have a right and you can't do anything to me about it. Um, But with respect to the police power, it's very fact based. So in the beginning of a pandemic, when we don't know anything about this disease, except for the fact that it's killing lots of people in other countries, um, taking a broad general measure is likely to be reasonable in light of our lack of knowledge. But as more knowledge comes in, it's imperative under this conception of the police power for the government to become more sensitive to the information we now have and actually make its remedies, its restrictions on liberty, uh, uh, more narrowly tailored to the problem that we have. Because remember, the key to all of this is first come rights and then comes government, as the Declaration says. Just because our rights may be reasonably regulated doesn't mean we don't have them at all. And the, way, and the reason why it's important that we do have them is it continues to put the burden on the government to have to justify what it's doing, or at least to have a rational explanation on the basis of facts for why it's restricting our liberties. If we didn't have those liberties in the first place, if government was the source of all our liberties, then, well, they could do what it wanted. Because our liberties come first, government really needs a justification for what it's doing.
0: So what you're saying is under a proper interpretation of the Constitution, there would be more successful as applied challenges to certain restrictions, even if we can all accept that there's a general police power to issue restrictions during a pandemic, I mean, or quarantine or, or what have you, that goes back uh, centuries, even before constitutional time. But uh, modern courts, uh, depends which judge you draw, I suppose, is what you're saying on whether they will find a particular uh, restriction uh, reasonable or, or uh, justified um, uh, in the government's uh, enactment.
1: Exactly. And it doesn't have to be uh, correct. It just has to be fact-based, uh, based on actual facts and justified that way. And for example, if you take Governor Whitmer's restriction on um, what you can buy when you go to Home Depot, and it's okay to buy some things, but you can't buy seeds for your garden. I defy the government to come up with a justification for why it's okay to buy, go up you know, aisle 12, but it's not okay to go up aisle 14. That's an irrational law. And an irrational law should be unconstitutional under any conception of the police power, uh, under any conception of the rational basis test. An irrational law that has no justification uh, should not be upheld.
0: Well, I think the, the Governor Whitmer would reply with two things uh, or anyone passing such a restriction. Uh, first, we want to decrease traffic flow to the store. Uh, and if people are going there for non essential goods, there'll be more people going there. And second, since we're only permitting these stores that sell both uh, essential and non-essential to, to open, we're not permitting the stores that only sell non-essential goods. It's, it's just not fair. So you know, a Walmart that has both food and lawn furniture is allowed to open, but a store that only sells lawn furniture is not allowed to open. So there would be effectively a, an equal protection problem in not uh, roping off those so-called non-essential goods. What do you think about those arguments?
1: Um, that would have been the argument I would I, I would have generated on behalf of the government if they'd have asked me to. Uh, so, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's what they would probably say. Um, you do have to ask yourself, um, under the irrationality standard, whether a law is arbitrary. The arbitrary is another word that's used instead of irrational. In fact, arbitrary is used more frequently than irrational. And an arbitrary law is one that is two people are being treated um, differently for inadequate justific- justification. Um and so at that point one might uh uh contend um that reducing, you know, uh traffic on the streets, that's I mean traffic car traffic on the streets is not a health hazard. We're all in our cars. This gets us back to the drive in theater, uh the drive in uh re- services uh um uh practice again. Um so um it, sure, you know, you
0: it's really if a court wants to enforce a narrow tailoring rule because you could deal with traffic flow and people you know, congregating in the store by having arrows saying you can only go down one side of the aisle and by restricting the number of people per square foot of the, uh, uh, of the store rather than simply closing
1: down certain aisles. That, um, is, that is correct. But let me just say, that gets us back to where we started. Under the modern approach to rational basis tests, you do not use a narrow tailoring rule. You just defer, the judges are supposed to defer. You only get to narrow tailoring if you're talking about a fundamental right. And a fundamental right is one that's either listed in the Bill of Rights or one that the court has found to be fundamental, like a right of privacy.
0: All right. Before we move on from the the general theory of the police power, uh, Eric Rasmussen has a question, um, citing the the Euclid opinion on the police power from the Supreme Court, uh, defining it as you did. Uh, as having a rational relation to the health, moral, safety, and general welfare of the community. But the Supreme Court has narrowed the police power considerably by effectively reading out uh, the morals head from that definition. Isn't that right? And has it narrowed it in some other ways or not?
1: It has, uh, in a couple of cases, read the morals part out. And the reason why it did is actually a, a, is a good reason in my view. It's, it relates to a brief that I filed for the Cato Institute, I'm uh, sorry, for the um, Institute for Justice with Dana Berliner uh, in the Lawrence case. And that is, um, if it's bare moral, if bare morality is your justification for the exercise of the police power, then there's absolutely no defense against an arbitrary law. Because how is a claim of morality going to be adjudicated by a legislature? Are you going to have a debate on the floor about what's moral and immoral? Are you gonna call expert witnesses about what's moral or immoral? Are you, how are you gonna get judicial review of whether the court, uh, legislature has exceeded its powers under that morals prong? Um, are you gonna have expert witnesses in, in uh, uh, take testimony on morality or not? And so if you can't do any of those things, essentially all it means is a majority gets their way uh, if they claim something is immoral, and that is simply an arbitrary law. Historically, that was not what morality meant in the police power. It is what it came to mean, and it came to mean because of the uh, temperance movement that was trying to wipe out alcohol. Historically, what public morality meant was either moral conduct in public spaces like public parks, streets, roads, that everybody has a right to access and the government regulates on our behalf, or activities that were thought to give rise to public health dangers, like for example, public intoxication Uh, or public uh, distribution of alcohol that would create an actual safety uh, hazard for third parties. So when you have an existence of a safety problem for third parties, like gets back to drunk driving again, the fact that it is immoral contributes, is not really doing the work here. What's doing the work here is harm to third parties. And you can, within the police power, you can prohibit immoral conduct that creates an unreasonable risk of harm to third parties.
0: But let's say, uh, as you said, the, the facts uh, might change the calculus. Uh, let's say we had uh, a good testing regime, which we don't now. Uh, and let's say we had immunity uh, 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 passports or bracelets. Uh, and could uh, a governor say, well, I don't care about this testing regime. I don't, I don't believe in these immunity passports. Uh, I think all restrictions stay on. And it's the, and it's the only governor in the country that uh, maintains that claim. Uh, are you saying that uh, courts really would still uh, defer um, modern courts? I mean not under the theory as you laid it out?
1: Yeah, I think most modern courts would defer uh, I mean that is a problem with most modern courts generally is they defer too much. Um, but that's what I think would happen unless you get lucky and you find a judge who doesn't and you might even be you know luckier in uh, state courts than you would in the federal courts.
0: All right, uh, let's move to an issue of uh, uh, federalism or interstate relations. Uh, some states have uh, uh, required uh, self-quarantine after uh, visiting from hotspots like New York, for example. Uh, and they're apparently applying that to both New Yorkers wanting to visit Texas or Florida, say, uh, as uh, Texans and Florida, Floridians are uh, returning home. Or for example, there's a question, Alaska currently has a mandatory 14-day quarantine for all travelers to the state, regardless of origin of travel or medical screening. Um, they're even required to order groceries to their residents without going outside. How would you evaluate that? This is more than a police power. This is a, a state rule that uh, impedes interstate uh, travel, uh, let alone uh, commerce.
1: Well, this gives rise to all kinds of vexation questions about the scope of the Commerce Clause. And then the scope of what's called the Dormant Commerce Clause, which is the fact that states are not supposed to interfere with interstate commerce, which is not something that the Commerce Clause says. The Commerce Clause says that Congress shall have power to to regulate commerce among the several states. So if we start there um, and Congress set up a regime in which it was regulating interstate commerce in order to protect the health and safety of members of, of individual states, the people of the individual states, I again think that would be upheld just the way it is if Congress puts uh, uh, into effect inspection laws for livestock that's moving from one state to another. Uh, That's a relatively easy question uh, from a constitutional standpoint. Um, If you're talking about the dormant commerce clause, it becomes more difficult because at that point, um, the issue is whether out of staters are being treated differently than in state residents. And it sounds like some of those regulations. Uh, fit that description, in which case um, there might be a challenge to them if you're treating out-of-state residents differently than in-state residents. Uh, But I'm not sure about that, and uh, I'm certainly not sure what a federal court would do. Uh, Typically, in situations like this, Ilya, you know as well as I do, um, that courts wait for the dust to settle before they really get in the middle of these sorts of things. Uh, The most egregious example of this was the internment of Japanese Americans, Japanese citizens, uh, US citizens of Japanese descent during World War II, because they supposedly posed a security threat to the West Coast. The courts initially upheld that. And only after World War II was somewhat in hand, and it was pretty clear that that Asian Americans did not pose that threat to the courts at that time say, oh, you know what? That was unconstitutional. Uh, That should not have been done. But while we were in the heat of battle, so to speak, literally in the heat of battle after Pearl Harbor, the courts did not step in. They deferred. It's typically what happens.
0: But effectively, I think what we're going to have, I don't know if anyone's yet challenging these uh, self-quarantine rules or out-of-state restrictions or what have you, but uh, states uh, are putting in these rules. The federal government, pursuant to the Commerce Clause, could preempt them. Uh, it hasn't yet. You know, this is one thing that neither President Trump nor any other federal authority hasn't said. Okay, you states your your quarantining rules or your restrictions on out-of-state uh, travel. Uh, you know, we're 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 blocking that. He hasn't done that. Um, but isn't that how um, how this would go along? Otherwise, states can control their borders if they have a good enough reason to do so.
1: Yeah, uh, that's typically right. Um uh, I think it's inconceivable that Congress will get would be able to um, pass a law uh, that would restrict states' ability to do this uh, given the current state of Congress. uh it's It's hard for me to imagine that that would be possible. So I don't th- I think that's a mere hypothetical possibility. The only thing that's really left on the table uh, is well, perhaps there's a statute laying around that already gives the executive branch authority to do something here because we don't know. there's so many loaded guns statutes. Laying around for the president to pick up and use, that you can't know what all of them are. But if barring that and barring a new law, all you have left is a com- is a dormant commerce clause challenge, and those are iffy to say the least.
0: Um, that you mentioned for the first time, Congress or the legislative branch. What role should legislative branches be playing in all of this? Because of course, with the governor and, and mayoral uh, uh, orders, that's the executive uh, branch uh, still. So this isn't a a federalism question it's not Donald Trump versus the governors it's you know shouldn't you know we've been we've we've been at it 7 8 weeks shouldn't state legislatures start uh either uh, uh ratifying or revoking certain of these executive powers congress as well of course congress hasn't been meeting uh but how does that interplay work there you know we have an emergency sure that you know the president doesn't need to go to congress to repel an, an attack or an invasion or you know in the first days of the pandemic there there's certain emergency powers there but uh, or governor for that matter. But now that there's time has gone on, what role do the, does the legislative branch play?
1: This is a separation of powers question at the state level that would be handled by state constitutional law, state by state. And it also depends a lot on the emergency me- uh, statutes that already are in existence in each state, because they vary from state to state. Uh, and some of them are temporary. Some of them have uh, a, a, a sunset so that you, you can ex- a governor can invoke it and exercise uh, emergency powers for 30 days. And I don't really remember which state it was. It might have been Michigan uh, in which the 30 day period elapsed and the Republican legislature said they weren't going to renew it. And then the governor cited a different emergency statute um, that would allow her to do what she was doing. At least that's what I remember from press reports. Don't hold me to that. Uh, but all of this is a matter of separation of powers. Uh, within a state. And executive uh, governors should no more uh, have an unlimited power to do something uh, without authorization by their legislatures than the president does, uh, unless he's exercising one of his inherent powers as president.
0: What are those inherent powers? Because it's funny you mentioned these like guns lying around. There's so many statutes that I had never, federal statutes that I hadn't heard of uh, until all of this started. And I should perhaps issue a a, a disclaimer or disclosure that uh, my wife works for the office of legal counsel at the justice department has been working on some of these things the uh, can only talk to me about them afterwards but the the meat packing uh, order for example to not to order the the meat packers to to stay open but to uh pre- rewrite the various rules and regulations and give authority to the agriculture department to rewrite them uh, in order to facilitate uh, uh as long as they're following cdc and other federal directives to to trump any uh, local or, or, or state uh, orders uh, to, to to the contrary. So, um, you know, what, what have we learned about federalism or about federal power in all of this? Are there delegation problems with all these emergency statutes lying around? Or conversely, does it show that there uh, is a way for Congress to properly delegate emergency power, even if we can uh, argue about whether it was properly used in the emergency declaration over the border wall or the lingering states of emergency that we still have over the fraud in the 2006 Belarusian election or the 1979 Iranian hostage taking. How do emergency powers and, and uh, a federal power, federal constitutional power generally uh, work? Uh, what lessons can you draw from that?
1: Well, emergency powers are dangerous powers, um, if left unattended. Um, Uh, On the other hand, emergencies do arise. And I guess one of the things that libertarians should keep in mind um, when evaluating all of this as a matter of first principles is that the individual rights that libertarians um, and other classical liberals favor, the rights of freedom of contract, private property, et cetera, these are all abstract rights that are derived from abstract features of our social life. Our social existence so if the world were different if the world if the if the composition of the world was different uh these rights might have to be different as well because they are intended to solve social problems uh, that arise in the normal circumstance so how might the world be different how might the what's the normal situation and how might the world be different well the normal situation is each of us do not pose a deadly threat by being in the vicinity of others we are in the vicinity of others all the time. It's true we could pick up a cold, and maybe some people are vulnerable to that, um, uh, more vulnerable to uh, that than others. But by and large, human beings do not pose a threat to each other when they come within six feet of each other, or even when they shake each other's hands without a ma- and, and are not wearing a mask. If the nature of human beings were different, not just in an emergency, but generally, if we, were, if we did pose that kind of danger to each other, well, probably the human race would not have survived. Uh, but let's assume that it did. The rules that govern social interaction to allow each of us to pursue happiness while living in proximity to others would have to be different than the ones we currently have. So what happens in an emergency situation is some of those features of social life may actually not obtain. They're normal, but we're not living in normal times. And so we're in a situation where some of the rights uh, have to be qualified or regulated in a different way. Um, when the circumstances that gave rise to those rights no longer hold. I think that's the theoretical approach that you have to take. But, 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 always keep in mind that the first thing that tyrants or other authoritarians want to do is claim we live in emergency situation, we live in different times, the facts of reality don't hold anymore. They love to claim these things. And those claims are usually false. I mean, they're almost always false when you examine them. And so that's the reason why we need judicial review uh, to independently assess whether claims like this by a governor or a president are actually warranted. Did they, when they say that we're an emergency situation, are we in one? I think in this case, we started off in one and we had the evidence of other countries to go by. If it had been a completely hypothetical uh, threat of the kind that existed in January when everybody was worrying about impeaching the president. Um, when it seemed quite hypothetical, well, that would be a different matter. But once people started catching this and dying as epidemic proportions in other countries, I think that the fact of the matter was we had a threat. And then the only problem was we didn't know exactly what to do about it.
0: All right, let's move to more uh, viewer questions. And I'll remind uh, the audience that however you're watching this, you can either input your question on on the box uh, online or tweet or Facebook message us at uh, hashtag CatoScotus. Um Question from Bridget Novak on Facebook. Uh, you mentioned masks briefly. What about forcing employers to have employees wear masks when there's no proof that they're effective? And I'll add, what about requirements just not to be in public uh, without a mask?
1: Oh, I'm particularly sensitive to the mask question because back in early February, I ordered some masks just in case this coronavirus got out of hand. And so they came and I had them. Uh, they were surgical masks. They were not the uh, uh, N95 masks. And uh, then I read all the expert test- experts that said, oh, the masks don't help. Don't wear masks. You know, you don't need masks. Please don't wear masks. Uh, and so all the experts told me that this purchase I made was a waste of money. And now look, now look where we are today. All the experts are telling us something else. Uh, that should tell us something about experts. Uh, we need them. God love them. Um, uh, but in fact, they change their story all the time. Um, I agree that all that government or any of us can do is act on the, on, the, on the information we currently have. But I think we must keep our open mi- mind open for the fact that information changes. And so masks used to be hopeless and worthless. Um, now they're supposed to be effective. And the N95 mask is supposed to protect us, as opposed to the other masks that are just supposed to protect other people. Uh, this is the kind of measure. And this is the reason why courts will not get involved in things like this, because I don't think that they feel capable of assessing these sort of facts on a day by day or week by week basis.
0: Are you reselling those excess masks on, on eBay now, Randy, that sounds like a good opportunity for you. Um, I'm still using Robert Woolley, Robert Woolley on Twitter. Here's mine, by the way, very, very patriotic right here. So I don't know what model you have, Randy. Um, Robert Woolley on Twitter asks, I live in a tourist destination, Asheville, North Carolina, as does our uh, chairman of Cato, uh, uh, Bob Levy, whose center I I direct uh, uh, on local social media people are furious about still seeing so many out-of-state license plates. A common call in these forums is for the governor to close the state's borders. Now, this is sort of repeating us, but what about vacation homes? Uh, if, uh, if out-of-state visitors uh, are restricted in some way, what about uh, someone who uh, owns property uh, in the state? Is that treated any differently?
1: Uh, you mean like, what about me? Uh, I'm actually uh, in, at my lake house in central Virginia. I took my uh, 97-year-old father-in-law and 91-year-old mother out of their senior apartment uh, building in uh, Chevy Chase before it got locked down, uh, brought them out here. And my wife and I have been quarant- self-quarantined out here in, uh, at Lake of the Woods, Virginia uh, for the last six weeks. Um, so I fall into that category. Uh, I think that's the sort of uh, restriction uh, that is unreasonable, in my view. I mean, having property uh, pro- having property has its privileges, uh, including the privilege of being able to get there. Uh, if you don't want people to own vacation homes, then prohibit vacation homes. It's not something that is going to happen or anybody wants to see happen.
0: A question from Ken Peterson, uh, Cato sponsor, uh, assume the following. Under Washington state law, the governor can declare an emergency for a quote, disaster in the area affected? Many counties, mostly rural in Washington state, have suffered no deaths and even very few confirmed cases. Can the governor lawfully declare an emergency in those
1: areas? I think this is going to be true of all of these hypothetical questions. Uh, We're going to go back to where we started in this this, uh, webcast, and that is that this is all very fact-dependent. Number one. Number two is it depends on getting a judge who's willing to hear the facts as opposed to a judge that says, that's not my job. I'm simply going to defer. Um, uh, And it also requires us to distinguish between what a court will do about a constitutional challenge and whether current uh, constitutional doctrine is consistent with the original meaning of the constitution. It's all of those things back in play. And we could just go through one hypothetical after another. I would say, that hypo- in that hypothetical, it sounds irrational to me uh, to c- declare a disaster in an area that has suffered few if any casualties. Um, but you know see my previous answer as the Prime Minister says it during Prime Minister's question time.
0: Here's a follow-up um, question from uh, anonymous. Uh, At this point in a pandemic, is it logical to believe that police powers should still be utilized by government? Because the only answer to when it is safe—quote—when is it when it is safe—is never. So, does I mean I, I guess I'm keep I'm I'm pushing you uh, again and again. But is there a point in time? Um, I mean, for that matter, I'll 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 sharpen the hypothetical even further. The common cold. Right. We get every all the time, constantly. We never get rid of it. We can't get a vaccine from it. It's a coronavirus. Um, You know, let's say there's a governor who's very, very concerned about public health and safety and wants to enforce all sorts of restrictions uh, to prevent the spread of the common cold. I mean, at at what point uh, is the breaking point of this rational basis test, even as, as modern judges apply it?
1: This is a great, I I, I realize this is the same question and I'm calling the same question a great question, but the way you put it uh, 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 reminds me of something that I actually want to write up, but I haven't done so yet. I want to to write this up as a blog post or an article, Uh, and that is that normally when we go out in public, uh, whenever we go out in public, there is a risk, there is a risk that we're going to be harmed. If you drive your car, there's a risk you're going to be in an automobile accident. If you walk down the street, there's a risk you're going to be hit by a car. So there are risks attached to any time you leave your home. Now, under normal circumstances, this is a normal circumstance, not an abnormal circumstance. So the mere existence of risk is not sufficient to justify restrictions of liberty. How do we handle that? We handle that by a negligence regime. We say, when you go out of your home, You assume the risk of being harmed um, by people acting non-negligently. You do not assume the risk of being harmed by people acting negligently. That's how we normally handle the normal risk that each and every one of us undergoes when we leave our homes, the privacy of our homes, and venture out into the public where, where we can actually be harmed. And I would say something like that. And, that's, and and by the way, tort law is a police power regulation. It's a regulation of all kinds of things. It's a common law police power regulation. Uh, so that's, I think, probably the model we should see. Have people acted negligently um, uh, when, uh, or intentionally or recklessly when they're doing things? And I think if people are acting um, uh, non-regulgently, given the circumstances of the threat, Um, And the measures that are taken to avoid that threat, they should not be held responsible and they should not be prohibited from going about their business in a way in which they're uh, when they're not acting negligently. Does that make sense?
0: Sure, sure. Um, That raises the question. We've had a few of this variation of questions. Uh, We keep talking about fact based and evidence based and things might change from time to time depending on the circumstances. Doesn't that. Uh, you know, that, that seems to sound like a, a living Constitution theory, that as we evolve, as norms change, then the meaning of the Constitution changes. But surely you're not advocating that.
1: No, the original meaning of the Constitution presupposes the existence of a police power to protect each and of, of our rights. And whether a particular right has been violated will depend on the facts and circumstances. While I was a criminal prosecutor, Prosecuting murder, rape, and armed robbery—it was only justified to put somebody uh, in the penitentiary if the facts and evidence showed that they were guilty of violating that that law. Um, so, the application of law to individual circumstances is oftentimes a matter of facts, um, and our understanding of the facts are going to change, and the circumstances are going to change. So, when you're facing a pandemic that's on the rise, you're in a different circumstances that when you're facing a pandemic that's in the rearview mirror. Um, and you apply general laws, including the original meaning of the Constitution, to changing facts, and then you'll reach different outcomes depending on the facts.
0: We have an interesting comment from C. Everett Koop, apparently, the uh, former Surgeon General.
1: I remember uh, him.
0: <laughs> uh, so do I. Uh, I'll, I'll call him uh, Mr. Surgeon because it's not general, uh, like Attorney General. General is the, uh, is the adjective descriptor. But uh, he says... Quote, risks, I think, are the thing that make life important and everything that you and I do is risk versus benefit. Is there a risk to sending your kid out? Absolutely. Is there a benefit? Well, it exceeds the risk. I think that's what you were saying, Randy. It
1: is. Um, It is what I was saying. And generally speaking, here's the thing. Um, Under modern law, under modern approach to constitutional law, it's the government that must weigh weigh all these risks and cannot be second guess if they make the wrong choice. Uh, I think under a more correct reading of the Constitution, it's the individual has to weigh these risks. So if I was going to ban risky activity, what I would ban is bicycle riding in proximity of automobiles and trucks and buses. I don't know anybody who's ever died of drug use, illicit drug use. I know a couple people that have died riding their bicycles and one with serious brain injury riding his bicycle in traffic. Um, Now, you go tell that to the bicycle riders that they are not going to be able to undergo that risk. They're going to be pretty upset with you. And then we can set within the next topic. We can talk about our skiers. People are going to strap boards on the bottom of their feet and slide down slippery hills that have trees in the vicinity. I think this is this is way too much risk. Nobody should be allowed to do that. Um, So I think that we're going to have to put the risks inherent in getting. I'd I'd like uh, to get uh, that case
0: before Justice Gorsuch. (laughs)
1: <laughs> um, I think we're going to have to um, uh, start evaluating, start, start being more realistic, more realistic about risks again, um, and um, not all hide underneath our beds.
0: Question from Patrick Peterson, is the right to assemble a fundamental enumerated right from the First Amendment? I, I think it is. Uh, if it is, how can businesses be considered non-essential and be stopped from operating?
1: Well, I know Patrick well, and uh, you would think, Patrick, that it really is a fundamental right, wouldn't you? It actually says a right of assembly. But guess what? The Supreme Court has undermined that right. They have converted the right of assembly, the right of peaceful assembly, into what they call a right of association, which is not the same thing as assembly, is it? And then they say there are two kinds of associations. There are intimate associations and there are expressive associations. So an intimate association is, you know, who you date, you know, who's in your family. Um, And an expressive association are get-togethers in order to express an opinion protected by the First Amendment, freedom of speech, essentially. Um, Well, regular businesses, they're not intimate associations. Regular businesses are not expressive associations. Therefore, under existing doctrine, um, they don't really get heightened protection, notwithstanding the existence of an enumerated right of freedom of assembly. Actually, if you want to read more about all of this kind of constitutional law, um, you should take a look at this book, 100 Supreme Court Cases Everyone Should Know, where Josh Blackman and I um, identify what happened and how modern law came to be the situation that we're currently in.
0: Yeah, I only know 87 of them, so I I wasn't as familiar with the one that you were just discussing. Actually, we just got a correction. This is a real time correction. Uh, uh, Both of us should have known this, but See, Everett Koop died in 2013, so I guess that was an imposter. Anyway, an intelligent intelligent comment. Or maybe that was an accurate quote of his. I'm not sure. It was in quotation marks, so maybe it was someone else uh, uh, relaying his quote. Um, I'm going with that. There you go. Uh, Mitch Nemeth from Twitter asks, Are non-essential businesses entitled to compensation if they can prove, one, they were previously solvent, Two, the lockdowns lasted beyond what was reasonable under the circumstances, which three, led to bankruptcy.
1: I hate these hypotheticals. Um, (laughs) It's it's, it's the reason I'm a law professor. I give exams. I don't take them myself. (laughs) Um, The... The question I get asked is whether this is considered a taking. Well, under existing taking doctrine, if it's a legitimate exercise of the police power, then it's not a taking. And a legitimate exercise of the police power is a more general directive to the community at large for health and safety reasons. What makes something a taking is if property is actually seized, that is a core of what a taking is, and that isn't what's happening here. What's going on here is what at best would be called a regulatory taking, it's a regulation that's rendering the use of your property less, of less value or of no value. There is a debate about whether regulatory takings were considered takings at, uh, under the original meaning of taking. My dean, William Trainer, uh, is also a historian and made, wrote some pathbreaking articles in the 80s and 90s, I believe, about why it wouldn't be regulatory takings were not takings under the original meaning of the takings clause. But even if it is, um, if it is a legitimate general uh, use of the police power, it would not be considered even a regulatory taking. What, a takings, what, a, what takings are there for is to uh, essentially when individuals are being singled out, so their property is now going to be taken and used by everybody else for their good, like to pick a park or uh, to, to build a highway. That individual should not suffer, uh, uh, should not have to pay uh, more than their fair share for the public benefit. Um, And giving up all their property is certainly more than their fair share.
0: A question from uh, related to uh, what you just discussed from Cato sponsor, Bob Zadek, who asks, can the police power be used to protect the citizenry from economic threats or is it just physical ones? In other words, are economic risks to be ignored in the exercise of police powers?
1: Well, I think we're starting to see the reason why it is said that the police power was abandoned as a way of understanding the scope of legislative power. At the beginning of this uh, uh, webcast, I said uh, that it used to be the case that state power was measured or assessed by the concept of the police power. So that's why everybody would learn about the police power because if states are acting within their police power, they're okay. If they're going uh, beyond their police power, it's not okay. That got replaced by the regime of The police power is relatively more or less unlimited, limited only by enumerated rights or rights the court deems to be fundamental. One of the arguments for why that happened is that it became too hard to draw all of these lines. Uh, It became too hard to say, oh, well, this is in and that is out. And this kind of harm is in and that kind of harm is out. Um, And because of that, you basically courts are said to have thrown up their hands and basically said, "Okay, we give up if you're if you're. uh, Restricting a fundamental right, then we'll look at it. But if you're not restricting a fundamental right, then the legislature's on its own.
0: Well, I'm sorry, Randy, about that. You don't like hypotheticals because most of these questions have some really, really interesting hypotheticals. And I mean, that's what that that's what's on people's minds these days. We you know we have the framework. How do we apply it? Here's one from Peter Mazer, who says, "I'm a healthy 66-year-old and concerned that states or localities will reopen facilities." restaurants, gyms, et cetera, but decide that these facilities should be restricted to persons based on age because of the perceived risks? Do I have reason for concern?
1: I think you do have a reason for concern. Um, I'm 68 myself. I have a reason for the same concern. Um, And um, I think that if they did that, they would be likely to be okay, except that there are actually age discrimination laws in place. as a matter of statute that you might be able to invoke. Um, I think if I think, as a matter of sort of kind of first principles, uh, we need to get back to an assumption of risk uh, scheme in which people assume the risks. Um, I was asked uh, a week or two ago about a con- by a Congressman um, off the record, I mean, for my advice on whether there was some way that businesses could protect themselves from liability. Um, uh, if they didn't prohibit, for example, people over 60 from coming in to their establishment. And I was unable to give him a surefire way uh, for businesses to do that. Uh, it would really be nice, wouldn't it? If uh, people could go out and assume the risks, um, uh, and be asked to assume those risks. And then when, they, when, the, when something bad happens, they don't turn around and sue the establishment for having let it happen. Um, but we're not, we don't have a surefire way of doing that now. Um, and I'd like to see something like that happen.
0: Well, following up on that, we have an apropos question from Nathan Sharpentier on Facebook. What liabilities are imposed on businesses like gyms when reopening in terms of being sued? Are there protections from the Constitution or is it purely tort law or other statutes? For example, can a gym get sued if someone contracts the virus? What would protect them?
1: Well, I see my previous answer. Um, what normally protects us from risks in a gym, for example, of having a weight falling on you is the fact that you, fi- that you sign a waiver of liability and a release of liability, and you assume the risk of using the gym uh, when you go there. Um, so, yeah, once again, it would be very nice if businesses could obtain a waiver. Now, one way that you know, waivers tend to be obtained these days is you put a sign over the door and you say you come in here at your own risk. Would the courts allow for that to happen? I don't know that that's true. When you actually have a genuine threat of litigation, generally speaking, you actually make people sign papers. Uh, uh, you, all of us have done that. All of us, when you you know, you know want to go uh, bungee jumping, uh, you want to basically rent a, uh, a jet ski, you have to sign on an elaborate paper saying you assume the risk of something happening so you don't put the jet ski company out of business. Um, I think um, that's the kind of thing that i would like to see happen i think that's the kind of thing that we could see happen and that would bring us all the way back uh, to either a negligence regime or even and oftentimes what uh, uh, those particular waivers allow for is uh you're not even held responsible for negligence you have to be you're only held responsible if you act recklessly um that's the kind of that's how we deal with risk now and i don't see any reason why we can't deal with this risk um, if we're willing to. But right now we have a lot of people running around um, uh, saying that we are, there can be no risk at all, no risk at all, absolutely no risk. And we cannot live in a zero risk society. That's just uh, that zero risk is not the human condition and our rights are not premised on zero risk.
0: Well, related to that, what about liability for employees? Uh, or if uh, an employer says, okay, we're opening up, uh, you know, come back and work. And if that employee doesn't feel safe, uh, and they're fired, um, what, what protection, you know, who wins that, that kind of dispute?
1: Well, if they're an at-will employee and they're not coming in to do their job, um, I would certainly feel for that employee. Uh, but the business has to go on and, uh, you can't go on without the employee being there. So I think that's, You know, I think most businesses are going to make accommodations, but I don't know that they have to. And I don't know that they are that many, many small businesses would be in a position to. I mean, this is the great uh, this pandemic is providing a great uh, uh, benefit, relatively speaking, to large corporations that can that can absorb a lot of these costs um, versus small businesses that simply cannot and just cannot stick around long enough to survive this, uh, zero risk mentality that we're, that we're currently undergoing. And we're all going to pay the price for these businesses going out of business. But let me, let me t- say something more generally, all of these questions, most of these questions in the whole, and the premise of this view, uh, this, uh, this webcast is based on the constitution and also really implicitly based on what you, what you can succeed at in court. Um, Much of this is simply matters of, this is also matters of public policy, matters about which the government needs to be responsive to public opinion and public pressures. Uh, This is a place for activism and pushback of the kind we've seen, for example, in uh, Huntington Beach or Newport Beach, I guess, in California and other places where citizens are basically voting with their feet. Most of the gun rights we have in this country, let's get back to that, because obviously owning a gun is very risky, risky for yourself and risky for other people. Um, I own several. Um, but, uh, the reason why I have the gun rights, I have by and large, the reason why all of us do is because it was politically, because of the political pressure brought to bear on legislatures by voters and other people. I mean, only late in the day did the Supreme court get around to protecting our right to own a handgun. And even then the courts have not been very good at protecting it. So we need to protect our own rights politically. Uh, and if you think the government is overstepping its bounds, uh, going to court is not the uh, is not the only way of dealing with uh, government overreach.
0: Question from Robert Woolley on Twitter: uh, Many states have laws, mainly passed in the fifties, against KKK rallies, prohibiting face masks in public, with no exception for public health reasons. Can a governor require people to wear a mask in public, in contravention of a statute on the books?
1: Um, I, I I like this one. I mean, I I, I hate it, but I like it um, uh, because we had there were there's a history of face mask laws in this country, and there's good po- police power reasons for these face mask laws, and it was to fight uh, the Ku Klux Klan and others that would uh, pose a danger to people, and and we've seen the the in some sense the abusive face mask uh, with Antifa. Um, and all of these black masks, uh, thugs going and beating up people, and you can't identify who they are because they're wearing masks. So there are public health reasons, public safety reasons for banning masks. Um, The question here is a a clash between an anti-mask statute and a a pro-mask governor. Um, Again, this gets us back to separation of powers. And I I think I would probably go with the statute. That would be my guess. What do you think, Ilya?
0: I mean, it would de- really would depend on the state constitution. There are some state constitutions that allow the have some sort of uh, emergency gubernatorial you know power to uh, supersede a statute. But in the absence of that, I don't think the governor can just set it aside, particularly given the hypothetical that we're given here, that uh, there are no exceptions for public health reasons. So you kind of have to follow the statute in that case. but that's a state by state issue. and so, you know, Randy and I are are both simple U.S. constitutional lawyers. You know, check someone who knows something about your state. Um, here's an interesting question because we, you know, uh, at different points we talked about uh, fundamental or enumerated rights uh, versus others that are less protected. Well, uh, freedom of religion, of course, is an enumerated right and one unlike freedom of assembly that has been enforced by the uh, courts. Uh, state governments have and continue to restrict religious gatherings either completely or by restricting them to a certain number of attendees, 10 or less, 20 or less, even if people are socially distancing, keeping six feet apart, being outside, what have you. Uh, in fact, there's a case that just today the uh, Attorney General, the the, the Justice Department, uh, filed in in uh, Chickateague Island, uh, Virginia, uh, in a case uh, where they were observing socially distancing and the pastor was arrested. So can state governments legally, constitutionally prohibit the free exercise of religion in this way?
1: See, now we're talking about a enumerated constitutional right that has been recognized as fundamental by the Supreme Court. When you're in that territory, then you start having to need narrow tailoring, and you have to start justifying why should this particular gathering be treated less um, respectfully than other gatherings um, that are usually allowed to take place as well. And so here. Uh, you're likely to get traction in the court. And in fact, there's already been some action taken, uh, some successful actions taken in court. Uh, Under the current regime, this is uh, the kind of scrutiny that it would be nice if we could get for all liberty.
0: All right. I think we only have time for one or two more questions. Uh, Here's a good one going back to the in-state, out-of-state issue by uh, Robert Thomas from Twitter. What about a state requiring, for example, that non-residents, whether tourists or visitors or vacation homers or what have you, have to wear an ankle bracelet upon entry, but that residents don't, even if both are required to self-quarantine for a number of days after entry?
1: (laughs) Um, Get granular on you. (laughs) I refuse to answer on grounds that... uh... I don't want to answer
0: on the grounds that you don't want to ha- wear an ankle bracelet in your, uh, Virginia yeah, in vacation in my, home?
1: in my, in my lake house now forget about it. I, 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 right. I, yeah. I have a conflict of, I have a, I have a conflict of interest on this one.
0: You, you, you DC, uh, you, 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 you district residents coming, uh, out from the swamp, bringing your miasma with you. Right.
1: I'll tell you, my neighbors are very, my neighbors are very nice people. They all welcome me. They're very glad to see that I'm here full time. They all want to know when I'm going to move down here permanently. I, I like my neighbors very much. Uh,
0: here's a good last one to finish on, another one from Patrick Peterson. Since the government seems to think that the U.S. is still in a crisis, then should we not find a judge that will finally seize this opportunity and not lose the opportunity to get the meaning of the right of assembly back to what the plain meaning was? And we form. I actually think there's a way to better law I,
1: here. I, I think there's quite a bit of opportunity. There, there's 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 less than zero opportunities, less than zero percent opportunities to start adjusting some of this police power stuff now that people see what the they've never heard of the police power before. Now that they've heard about You're, how unlimited it is, more than it's zero. Be, they don't. What's that? You said less than zero. I'm sorry. Greater than zero. Um, there's a greater than zero chance uh, that we could we could. Um, start to rethink a lot of this stuff. Um, on the other hand, you know, I would think that progressives would like to rethink all the executive power that they've given the president over the years, now that the person they don't like is president, and that doesn't seem to have happened. So somehow, uh, people, who, people who are statists and believe in government solutions for everything, they're patient, they just will wait around till the government they like gets this power and they will, they're not gonna impose constitutional constraints on, that, uh, on themselves.
0: All right. Well, that's a a good uh, spot to end with, I think. Uh, We'll have to pick it up again in uh, Coronavirus and the Constitution 3 in another two weeks, perhaps. But thanks, everyone, for uh, watching this on whatever uh, platform you're on. Uh, We had so many questions, uh, probably three times what we had our last time. I think something like 500 people uh, registered. I'll, I'll get the final viewing later, but I, uh, I apologize that we couldn't get to all of them. The video recording of this event will be up on uh, Cato's website later today, and you can feel free to keep the conversation going on Twitter at I Shapiro at R E Barnett. Is that yours, Randy? Randy E Barnett. Oh, he's Twitter. muted. I think yeah, it's Randy, Randy E Barnett. Yeah. Yeah. Randy yes. E Barnett. Okay. Uh, and, uh, uh, keep, involved, keep engaged. Uh, Stay safe, uh, but uh, evaluate your risks wisely. Thank you.